All right. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Stoa. Thank you for being here. As a reminder, this is a community-funded project, so if you enjoy listening, you can support us by sending some sats to this QR code on our website at bitcoinstoa.com, or you can boost us sats using uh, Fountain. The Fountain app is a great podcast interface. Uh, you can also be paid Bitcoin to listen to podcasts using Fountain. Uh, current Moscow time is 37.06 at block 812.352. And with that said, it's my honor to welcome Dan Ostermeyer to the podcast for a conversation about his story as an ER doc uh, who escaped the medical matrix. Uh, we're also going to talk about how he got into Bitcoin. We're going to talk about co-sleeping because Dan actually wrote a book about that. And so, Dan, welcome to the Bitcoin Stoa. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So maybe because it's your first time on the podcast, why don't we start with uh, your story? So maybe tell the people you know, who you are, the work that you do, um, and a little bit about maybe what motivates you these days. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, thanks. Uh, thanks for the info. Um, I, um, I'm i an ER doc. I live down here in Houston um, with my family. I, um, you know, in the United States, you know, we go to medical school, we have a, we have a residency. I did my training out in Los Angeles at a county hospital um, down in uh, Southern Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, I practice in the ER day in and day out, day in and, you know, and um, we basically, um, you know, we do all the normal stuff. It's, uh, you know, it's just like a, you know, it's a shift work kind of job. It's, uh, you know, night shifts, weekends, holidays, um, sort of all the stuff that you, you never really want to encounter a doc for. Um, but, you know, we're there when, you know, people probably need us the most. And, um, you know, it's a super gratifying position for, um, you know, for the last, you know, 11 years, I've been practicing medicine, um, you know, as an attending, you know, prior to that, all the training. Um, and it was awesome. And, you know, basically, you just, you know, grinding along, studying, doing all the normal things that, you know, you hear about docs doing, um, you know, especially when I was in Los Angeles, you know, just learning the, learning the ropes of how to be an independent, you know, practitioner in medicine. And, um, and then, you know, up, you know, fast forward to up until today, and you mentioned sort of escaping the medical matrix, um, you know, along the way, um, we sort of had some slow sort of eye-opening moments to, you know, what we, you know, know about, you know, the modern healthcare system, what we know about, um, you know, sick care versus healthcare because they're two distinct, you know, two distinct things. Um, and then um, you had mentioned a little bit in the intro that, um, you know, had um, who'd written a book about co-sleeping. That was probably my sort of red pilling moment to just sort of what the medical literature can tell people is truth and what we can tell people for certainty and what, what we can't, you know, there's limits to, you know, human knowledge and especially there's huge limitations to, to medical knowledge. Uh, and a lot of what we, we know about as medical knowledge is, um, you know, is, is, is inexact science. And that's probably the, you know, the nicest way to put it in that um, some of the things that we recommend and, you know, for example, my sort of eye-opening moment was when, you know, we first had our first kid and, and it's a terrifying moment. And, you know, when you might have an MD after your name, but you're still no more prepared to take care of a, you know, a growing human than anyone else. And perhaps even less prepared than someone who's, you know, raised many other children before and, and mothers who've come before you. And so um, that was sort of my sort of bigger eye-opening moment about some limitations and, and some recommendations that the, the healthcare community has for, for, you know, for raising a young kid and, uh, and trying to deal with some of those challenges. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, Good intro. And I think, I think when it comes to medicine, you know, I think there are so many benefits to modern medicine. You don't want to throw everything out by saying, oh, the medical system is broken. Because I think while, you know, and I love the distinction you made too, because I completely agree that disease care or sick care is different than health care. And I think we need to acknowledge it as such. But I think in terms of sick care, emergency room medicine 
for emergencies. I'm very grateful that that exists. If I ever have an emergency, I want there to be able to be docs available that I can go to, to reset the bone in my arm or take care of an acute emergency. And so I think that is one of the most powerful uh, examples of the, you know, the wonder of modern medicine. Uh, I think with the chronic stuff, um, that's where we kind of drop the ball, where we're so hyper-focused almost on trying to get rid of the symptoms that we're presented with. We sort of lose sight of the fact that, well, we're hum the default state of humans is healthy. So why are we seeing so many things break down um, when the body is so good at being healthy? And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, when it comes to, I've heard some MD friends of mine describe medicine as sometimes the golden handcuffs, where you go to school, you put in all this time, uh, learning and spending all this money to get a degree. And when you come out of school, you have a good salary, but that income and position can sometimes restrict the path uh, in terms of what you're able to do and what you're able to say. Um, and so when you talk about, you know, bumping out of the matrix, how has your, I guess, experience been since you first became an MD till now? And, you know, you know, if there was an MD listening to this that feels really, really trapped in the current way of doing things and maybe wants to have a better way or, or hear inspiring stories from docs who have found an alternative way in some way, shape or form within the medical system. Uh, how has your journey been since you became a doc until now? How are you doing things differently? And what words of wisdom do you have for uh, maybe a, a doc listening? Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. So, you know, when you say break out of the matrix, and I say that, and I, I you know, sometimes talk to myself and, and friends about, you know, how you can sort of free yourself, you know, from the matrix. It's just a way of thinking. I still practice within the modern healthcare system. I'm still an ER doc. I, you know, work within all the confines of modern medicine and all the, you know, beauties like you mentioned. But um, when you go back to sort of the beginnings of, of physician training, you know, in medical school, um, despite all of the criticisms that we may have of modern medicine, medical school training is really a, a first principles training, at least for the first two years. You know, a lot of people will talk about the, you know, the, you spend a lot of time memorizing tests and facts, um, but all that is really, you know, scientific, you know, fit first principles. How does one particular receptor interact when it's triggered by an X pharmacologic, you know, therapy? How does uh, your body's physiology interact when it's exposed to uh, a particular toxin? How does cholesterol get processed actually within the body? All those basic physiologic first principles are, are taught without really any prejudice. Um, and that first principle thinking, although perhaps not tested in the most first principle way, and I think that maybe contributes a lot to why some of those first principles are, are forgotten and, and the basic fundamental building blocks of, of, you know, human physiology and, and chemistry are perhaps forgotten because it maybe is tested in a little bit of a regurgitative fashion where you're really just spinning back facts instead of processing some of the, you know, the actual, um, you know, truths, which have been, you know, discovered over, you know, hundreds of years and, and lots of basic benchtop research uh, methodology to figure out, you know, how our body actually works and then gets put into practice, perhaps in a, I mean, in a bastardized type way. Those first principles are taught to all docs. They all have them. They're all, they're all there. And, and there's just that the, the ability or maybe the uh, impetus to continually ask why, you know, why does this work? And then mm. why do we know that this works this way, this particular receptor? Why do we know that humans behave this particular way when exposed to this particular stimulus? Or why do we know that the body reacts this way when exposed to this disease? And then asking why, you know, that, you know, many layer time to finally get down to that first 
principal truth. You know, that, that, that is there at the fundamental building blocks. And, and if, you know, if there's doc listening who, or anyone, you know, in, in the healthcare profession, irrespective of whether you have a, a, you're a doc or not, um, you know, going back to those first principal truths, remembering how you were taught to read a, you know, a scientific paper with a bit of skepticism and understanding the limitations to scientific research and how it can really only potentially um, show a negative and not prove a positive. Um, that you can show that something is not there, uh, but you can't know for sure that you have not, you know, had a false, you know, positive result. Those those truths are all there inside all, you know, scientifically trained, you know, people. Um, it's just perhaps that when you get into practice and you're, you know, following a guideline or you are um, expected to perform a particular way for a metric within your healthcare system, uh, it becomes lost. But it, but you know, that knowledge was, you know, should ideally still be inside almost all of us who have, you know, have gone through any type of medical or scientific training. Yeah. Well said. And it's just a matter of, like you said, remembering to continue asking questions. And, um, I guess, you know, really reverting back to first principles and the things we know for sure to be true and then building an understanding from there. I think it's sometimes easy to, um, you know, and there's so much to know. This is the, like, I think the crux of it, where there's so much to know, there's so much to understand. Uh, it can sometimes be the easier path is to take the result of a research study as truth, because there's no way to have enough bandwidth to learn deeply about everything. Um, but I think, like you said, it, it's almost like every research paper we read is sort of one piece of the puzzle and is not the whole truth in and of itself. And until you zoom out and really, like you said, take your first principles tool belt and apply it to that piece of data, uh, you don't really want to treat that as gospel. You want to treat it as part of the puzzle. Um, you're a Bitcoiner and this is kind of how we connected. John Vallis and I did our first health hang. Yeah, you would listen to that, send me a message on, uh, on x it seems weird to see it say x yeah. <laughs> so like in twitter mode um and yeah you just kind of mentioned that you know you're open to having conversations about health and so i'm going to chat to john it might be good to get you on our next sort of health hang uh depending on what the topic we're talking about is but you're a bitcoiner and i'd love to hear um your bitcoin story you know when did you get into bitcoin and what i'm always curious about specifically is how has understanding, learning about living in alignment with Bitcoin affected the way that you um, work or the way you perceive the world. So, you know, tell it in as long form or short form as you want, but how did you first get introduced to Bitcoin? Um, what was that first touch point, if you remember it, and mm -hmm. sort of how has that journey gone until where you are today? And how has that affected, you know, how you view the world? Because I, I, those are the answers I really love hearing about. Yeah. Um, so my story, so they're all gradual. Um, it's, you know, it, it, you know, we, you know, the, the phrase gradual and suddenly all suddenly is also sort of, I think an individual, you know, story as well. Everyone has sort of those gradual exposures to it. And then suddenly there's a, there's a click. Um, I can say that I remember, uh, well, even before, you know, just learning about Bitcoin, you know, I, I had some computer science background in undergraduate. It was always very interested in technology. I remember getting, you know, first compact computer in the house and just going, you know, wild with it and being so impressed and interested in being able to, whether it's, you know, as a young kid, cheat on a Diablo game or, or reprogram, um, you know, a small little basic script to try to do a particular thing to move the mouse away. And it was just incredible. Um, so there was always an inkling of, of technological wonder um, that I've had um, since being a young little kid um, and being able to tinker with, you know, things, tools and, and computers in the house. 
But, um, you know, so besides for just having, a, you know, a fascination with technology, um, there's also, and it's very difficult to know where this came from, um, but, you know, perhaps it, it originates with your parents, a lot of ideas, um, sort of this idea of peer-to-peer trade. Um, you know, I remember my parents, or at least my mom, always being involved with craft fairs and farmers markets, and that sort of perhaps imbued a sort of very subtle, subconscious, you know, understanding that, um, you know, trade between individuals is always on a small scale, even though it often gets abstracted away in, in a much larger scale with, with businesses. But um, when I was, uh, when I was an undergraduate, um, I had this, you know, it was a really interesting idea probably taking, building upon this peer-to-peer idea that, um, you know, in undergraduate, you're always buying textbooks. Um, there's probably um, a much cheaper and easier way of not having to do the hamster wraps race of, upgrading $100 per, you know, semester to the new book, why not, you know, trade amongst, you know, university. So I had actually, um, you know, programmed with it with some help of some other friends at university, a small little, you know, book trading um, uh, site just so that we could just bypass, you know, the bookstore. There's no reason to, to not just swap books, especially if the edition is still the same as the one prior. Um, and, you know, it caught on a little bit and it was fun, but, you know, it fizzled ultimately and it had built upon some of the Facebook marketplace um, graphs that were available at the time when Facebook was actually first starting to roll out to universities. And so that sort of got in my mind, um, again, probably subconsciously, and it was forgotten about for a while, the fact that things ultimately on the internet are peer to peer. Um, and that was, you know, really exciting to me, um, whether it was BitTorrent or Shazam or Kazaa and a lot of these file sharing. Um, <laughs> I've heard Napster those names in so in long, day. but I remember them. Yeah. And so that was really big when I was in university, Napster and trying to port forward through firewalls at universities and try to share your music collection, even the simplest of having your iTunes, iTunes directory exposed on the network so everyone could stream from their iTunes client on their computer, your playlists. Um, and that just built upon, you know, my fascination with just peer-to-peer technology and, and how fun it is to, to share things. And that information ultimately always wants to be free. And, you know, knowing that, um, you know, seeing how long torrent sites and, and Bitcoin client, BitTorrent clients have essentially been impossible to ever stop, even though, you know, the torrents go offline, you've got the, um, you've got the DHT links to keep them going and that these files essentially live on forever as long as one or two clients still have them and are, and are, and are peering. And then uh, fast forward, um, I was in residency, you know, dirt poor, working, you know, long hours. And I, I remember reading a Slashdot article about, um, you know, about Bitcoin. I thought it was interesting. And I sort of wrote it off. Um, but I, somewhere along the line, I heard another story about it and um, had seen it in a, in a, you know, a chat room that I was a part of. Um, and, you know, just wired some money to Mt. Gox. You know, I only had a few hundred dollars anyway. So, you know, why not, you know, try to see what this is. And sure enough, Bitcoin shows up. You got to fire up an Electrum wallet. At the time, it was sort of what I used. I wasn't running a full node. And and it was just incredibly fascinating that you could just send, you know, send something that seemingly had value, um, even though it was only, you know, couple, you know, $100 or so at the time, back and forth between individuals. And then it went up in value and I sold it and I could buy a surfboard because I lived down in Los, you know, Long Beach and I thought it was great. And I thought I was a you know, genius. And then I just promptly forgot about it. Then fast forward and you hear about it again and again, you hear about the Silk Road and there's this multi-touch point, um, you know, just exposure to the fact that this thing continues to live. And I think at that point I connected it, you know, to the concept of BitTorrent where, if there's always one peer or one seed 
then, you know, the forest can be regrown. Um, and that idea, um, you know, really flourished in my mind about how this was maybe not necessarily the monetary revolution at the time, because I, I didn't have, you know, had not gone down the monetary rabbit hole, um, but was at very least an incredible piece of technology that at the very least allowed, you know, small scale commerce. I thought, oh, this would be awesome for farmer's markets. Thinking about my mom selling baskets at a farmer's market. You just tap one phone together to, with another and instantly you exchange, you know, a Bitcoin's worth of value. And at the time, you know, in 2011, 2012, that, you know, just was amazing. And I just sort of put it in the back burner, put the seed phrase away and just forgot about it. And then as I heard about it more and more and, and you know, started, um, whether listening to podcasts or also listening, uh, reading, you know, just various articles on it, revisiting the white paper and just reading it one time when I had a free weekend, cause I was, you know, th fascinated by it. Um, it just began to click as something that essentially was unstoppable and that sort of unstoppable tech is really, you know, it's just really inspiring because it's, it's, like, it's essentially like a constant, um, mm -hmm. that, um, you know, the same BitTorrent clients that worked back in the day, still those BitTorrent clients work now. Whereas, you know, I remember distinctly various, you know, file sharing clients disappearing because they have a company behind them or they were sued out of existence. Whereas things that were built on protocols like Nutella protocol, those still, they still exist and they still function well. And, and I think that sort of college environment that I had been in, plus the multi-exposure um, uh, technological um, descriptions that I, you know, had read, slowly just, you know, solidified it as something legitimate. And then after that, much of the monetary, you know, discussions have come, um, you know, through, you know, Michael Saylor's work and many of the books, the Bitcoin standard, um, those books um, just, you know, embellish the technological brilliance in sort of the social layer, which is, I think, the monetary layer, because, you know, it's just a piece, you know, it's just, it's just tech, uh, but it's, yeah. you know, that's sort of ungovernable, immutable and you know protocolized piece of tech that is you know beyond us and that will live just like any type of open source operating system well beyond you know the corporation that you know stops supporting it and that is you know that is really inspiring because you can see it throughout all of you know computer history is that all a protocol has to do is just exist and it has to exist and have some sort of interest and then it never goes away. You can see how long BSD has existed within the, you know, the academic environment as Unix. And then now ultimately in most of the, most of the, um, the tech world as Linux, uh, you can see how all the internet protocols have just continued to exist. And you can see how a lot of proprietary tech, whether it was the proprietary VHS, VHS, VHS standard, all the proprietary HD DVD standards, they all go away over time because they, they lose the support. But when something is essentially without, um, with, you know, without a corporate backer that's needed, it can just exist. And all it needs is time and time and usefulness uh, will always be on its side. And that was, um, I think from the tech standpoint, what really got me. Uh, and then, you know, you start going down the monetary rabbit hole and you, and you learn about how, you know, how it, you know, is a potential solution to so many, so many, at least societal problems that, that we see, see ourselves in. Wow. That was a great explanation. Is that the first time you've told it on a podcast, the story? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, to be honest with you, I'm, I don't, I think this is probably one of the first podcasts I've ever, I've ever done. I don't, you know, cool. I, I'm just a, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a dad and a, and a doc. I don't, I don't, I don't do a lot of, you know, I have nothing to promote. I think you got a lot to share. You know, I don't have anything from all I'm, I do these selfishly because I want to talk to people like you that I would never otherwise have a chance to talk to, right? We're in different countries, different ecospheres in terms of work. And I think it's just a really beautiful thing that even though we use the platform of, of Twitter slash X, 
to connect. Uh, just the notion that you could talk to someone somewhere completely different, find common ground and actually appreciate just hearing stories of how everyone comes to this destination of being what we call, you know, a Bitcoiner. The other day I was even talking um, to my wife saying like, you know, I'm excited for the time where saying you're a Bitcoiner is as silly as saying you're an interneter. It's like, you don't say that anymore because everyone uses the internet. And yeah. I, I really think that, you know, the people who call themselves Bitcoiners are almost going to be the OGs in, this, in the grand scheme of things to where, you know, my, my daughter won't say she's a Bitcoiner. She'll just be like, well, duh, dad, I just, I use the money that everyone uses. Um, but I love how you're, the soil that allowed sort of the seed of Bitcoin to germinate after a couple of touch points was the unstoppability of file sharing and protocols. And I, and it really does seem like we're in kind of this transition point, not only in the monetary system, but also moving away from platforms, which are showing their susceptibility to censorship and, um, you know, all the negatives that are associated with a company running a server that you need permission from to post something or say something. Uh, this transition from platforms to protocols, which are unstoppable, uh, which actually have this accretive effect where everyone building on a protocol actually makes more, creates more value for that protocol, for everyone using it, including all the other companies. So whereas, you know, the proprietary tech in Facebook's protocol or a platform, if they build something cool, they don't benefit anyone else in the ecosystem except for them, which is their incentive, I suppose, capitalistic wise to make money off of what they're doing. But I think there's just a really cool feature with protocols where someone that builds a really cool Nostr client or Bitcoin client, Bitcoin wallet can actually inspire a lot of cool ideas for someone else who builds one. And they're not actually, they're allies more than competitors. Sure, they're competitors. But if you look at this new world that's blossoming as an unending amount of people that are going to be coming into it, it's like we need all the clients we can get. And actually the free market is really the best arbiter of who's going to win and the best experience ends up winning. And that benefits everyone from the companies to the users. Whereas you know, the client server architecture of platforms, it's like, it doesn't really have this same holistic benefit um, that, a, that a protocol has. So yeah, very cool that you came at it from that perspective. And it really is sort of this, Bitcoin sort of this ephemeral blob that just kind of chips away at, at all of what you previously thought or understood. And just sort of gradually, or at least I found in my experience, tears everything I formerly thought I knew down and allows me to rebuild from, like you said, first principles, from this standpoint of being able to feel empowered that I can verify truth. And actually, you know, if I store my time in a tool that doesn't steal my time, I have time to look into all these things and actually learn about the world in a way I never thought relevant before. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I mean, that's just, it, that is just how humans have worked forever. I mean, we call it yeah. a protocol because that's the computer science term for it, but it's just an, it's a useful idea. I mean, just like the just first English. ape that discovered, you know, the ability to use a stick to get ants out of a log. I mean, and then everyone else mimicked that useful tool. I mean, it is just a useful idea put into practice uh, with an ecosystem that is free around it. And that, um, you know, that, you know, that is essentially what a protocol is. English languages, languages are protocols. The scientific method is a protocol. I mean, these are yeah. just ideas with a useful framework. And we've done this since the beginning of time, you know, since we emerged from the jungle. Yeah. Yeah. And this is just the newest tech. Uh, exactly right. Yeah. That when you're in it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it seems slow when you're in it, but when you really zoom out, it goes, it's like technology is speeding forward at light speed with each technological innovation. And yeah, it's like sometimes easy to forget how fast we're actually moving. When you look at the zoomed out timeline of humanity, um, 
And it seems like every new tech iteration is actually like an order of magnitude, more empowering and more accessible, especially now that we all have access to internet connected devices. Um, so yeah, very exciting time. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, I have my own standpoint of how Bitcoin is going to change health um, and disease care, like that whole area of the world, um, sick care, disease care, health care, just the, the space of health, everything from individuals taking care of themselves all the way to individuals seeking help when they get ill. Um, any thoughts to share on how, yes. you know, how Bitcoin and this unstoppable monetary protocol is going to impact the world of health or, and maybe even more specifically, because that's a really general one is like, what are you most excited about in terms of how Bitcoin has the potential to positively impact uh, human health? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure Bitcoin, I mean, so Bitcoin probably won't impact health. Well, I think the, be the better way of saying it is that I think the biggest problem that allows for us to have sort of healthcare and disease care sort of mixed in the same bucket is the fact that most people have very little sort of skin in the game in terms of the cost of their decisions for, um, you know, for acquiring a disease. So we see, you know, you mentioned, the, you know, many chronic diseases are as a result of various life choices, whether intentional or unintentional. Uh, and beyond you know, the genetically you know, linked you know, chronic diseases. But many of the chronic healthcare problems, diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, um, the, many of the adverse events that result from those, heart attacks, strokes, vascular problems, all of those are as a result of there being a um, sort of a very easy path to um, have those diseases well-funded, uh, through a lot of the sort of insurance um, entities that we use. So not to say that most of those diseases are not real problems. They certainly are. And most of them probably have very easy solutions, although very difficult for individuals to implement, much of which are a sort of lifestyle changes. Mm. And we have many small medications along the way that can hopefully ameliorate them before they cause serious problems. Um, but the ease of getting care for those and the sort of the cheapness of which that care appears to be is often as a result of the way that we interact with healthcare. We pay through it. We pay for the, you know, the problems and, and this, you know, quote unquote solutions to those problems indirectly. And so, um, you know, the, the cost of having to continuously go to a physician because you have X, Y, or chronic disease is abstracted away because the cost of your insurance is also abstracted away. Uh, and the payment for that service uh, is abstracted away to the, you know, the insurer. And so there's no real direct relationship going back to our peer to peer conversation between the doc accepting and charging a fee for managing a chronic disease or a complication from a chronic disease and the individual having to, to give that money, which from directly from their bank account to somebody else for that chronic disease. Great example. I, you know, I, uh, we carry a, you know, we use, we use a, our, our family uses a company called crowd health here in the United States. We do, you know, this crowdfunding model. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, Andy, and it's a fantastic model. And when I heard about it, it, uh, you know, it, it immediately aligns the person's health with their piggy bank. Uh, and also at the same time, provides a sort of fair, equitable way to hopefully negotiate the cost for a procedure or intervention when it's really required. Mm. Um, so I have a direct incentive by not 
um, having money indirectly taken out of my paycheck to go to, you know, a Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance plan to make sure my family stays in tip top condition because we can then continue to put our money into whatever asset we want, some of that into Bitcoin um, and have that as an emergency insurance fund for when, if a problem arises in our house in a catastrophic way. But knowing that we're trying to avoid all of the chronic disease potentials along the way so that we can continue to keep our own money under our own control. Um, if you don't see your money that way and the money is siphoned, um, you know, even though you voluntarily agreed to have your money go into you know, an insurance plan from your provider and it's siphoned off, uh, one, it, it sort of happens behind the scenes, so you don't really see it. Uh, two, when the cost actually does come up, it's also abstracted away. And all you might see is that you had to pay maybe a $30 copay at the doctor's office. But you don't realize that actually what you paid for, for managing your high blood pressure and your diabetes um, was really $750. You know? And then for the times at which you don't use that money, uh, that money is, is essentially being given to somebody else who has incentives to you know, have X, Y, or Z treatment available for you. So Bitcoin, if it is gonna fix the healthcare system, could potentially give individuals a way to save in a sovereign fashion with the potential for appreciation um, and, and see the, and care for that pot of money directly themselves and not want to give it away for a particular intervention. And so be very thoughtful about what intervention they want. Would they go get LASIK eyes to their surgery for the convenience of not having to wear glasses if it costs them directly, you know, two and a half thousand dollars? Maybe, maybe not. But when it's only seemingly $150 because of a procedural, you know, copay from their insurance company, uh, it seems like the barrier to enter into that procedure is very low. When in fact, it was just high and it was high many months and years prior to it as a result of you continuously having, you know, a very costly or high quality insurance plan that makes it seem artificially low. So I think there's a possibility that when the, the at least the payment for healthcare services is directly aligned with the individuals who are paying for them, um, the quality of care needs to be exponential. Um, you, there's, you know, there's a fantastic hospital here in, in, in uh, not in Houston, but in, in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Surgical Center, which they just do cash payments for everything. And so you want your, uh, you know, need your gallbladder out uh, for X, you know, particular reason. They say it's fifteen hundred dollars. We're directly in line with the customer. We will incur all costs for complications that occur. We don't need any type of regulators saying that we're going to be, you know, penalized for a particular infection that arises because we're going to eat the cost if we have an infection. Mm. Uh, so we want to make sure that our docs are top-notch docs. We want to make sure that you have a top-notch experience because you're you're departing with your dollars directly to us, uh, and we want to make sure that you um, have no complications because that's going to eat into our bottom line. So we're all financially we all, we all have the exact. We all have the same incentives, the person paying, the person doing the procedure and the hospital providing the facility all have the same incentive, which is an excellent result for an excellent value because it's in a direct, you know, peer to peer consumer relationship, just like, you know, commerce has been since the dawn of time. Uh, and that direct relationship is lost. Um, and if it's able to be brought back, it's able to be brought back because people want to save uh, and people want to save because they have something to save in and they want to save uh, themselves as well. And they can save themselves by, you know, pursuing other alternative means to healthiness that are beyond, you know, just medical interventions. Wow. That was a really, that's a really cool perspective that actually it's not um, something I had thought of, but you're right. It's like, if we make the 
monetary pain point of treating disease invisible, then we're actually skipping through the lesson. Like we make the lesson invisible when we make um, the incentive to be healthy uh, as being like, if, if it costs you a lot of money to treat a disease, the inverse of that is it's profitable to take better care of yourself because you don't have to put a bunch of money towards this treatment. And I, it's really cool how the disintermediation is part of the solution, right? Like just like the disintermediation uh, with Bitcoin, where you now actually interact peer to peer in a truthful way without um, there being this blurriness or opaqueness to the, these intermediaries where we actually don't know what's happening under the hood. It's just this magic where we have the, like you said, a copay, and then we get the treatment, but all the in-between stuff, all the wasted money on all the intermediaries and all the sneaky stuff that happens so that we don't actually fully grasp the true cost of what we're doing. Um, that removes an incentive to take better care of ourselves. And yeah, I think that's a really interesting take. I mean, it's a little bit different here in Canada, but it's actually not that different. Um, you know, instead of, you know, my way of putting it is like, it's not like you have to pay extra uh, for health like you do in the States. It's just included in the taxes you pay, which are uh, way more been than- paid. Everyone's paying. Yeah. Everyone's paying everywhere. Yeah. You know, we're paying hear, in some way. Yeah. You'll hear people who say that they love the NHS and, and you know, UK. I mean, they're paying for that as well. And so it might, what appears to be an expensive cost in the United States for some things might actually be an expensive cost. For many things, it's just that uh, you know the insurance didn't want to pay for it. Uh, and, and if there was a direct alignment between the person and the, and, and, and the procedure, it one would probably competitively come down like all direct consumer goods eventually come down in price because there's a continuous competitiveness to deliver better value and better service to capture more of the market. Um, and because that free market dynamic in healthcare is really not there, there can be many hidden costs and in various different countries, it's exposed in different ways, whether you have to wait a while because of a particular socialized requirement to, to wait for in line, uh, or uh, it's exposed because a thing costs in your country a really large amount of money and people may come after you if you don't pay uh, with creditors. And, and so really, I think what it comes down to in order to make healthcare better, you, you just have to make people want to save. Like people yeah. want to not spend money on healthcare because there's a way to avoid it. Uh, and if you have something that you really want to save in, well, then you have an even extra incentive to not spend money on dumb things. And for many yes. things, uh, it, it appears that it's not dumb because it's your life, but there are perhaps many other steps prior to that where you could have avoided spending. Um, and, and, um, and that's, and that's really, it's just, a, it's a, it's a conscious awareness of trade-offs and, you know, the, the bag of Doritos with canola oil has, it has a trade-off, um, and it's just, it's hidden. And once you become very aware of the trade-offs in all aspects of your life, because you want to save things, whether you want to save your time, whether you want to save your experiences, whether you want to save your money, you know, it's just, it's sort of the, you know, this nice adage, I'm not sure who said it, but we just need to make saving great again. And you say, when you want to save things, um, then, and you have ways of actually saving them, you know, truthfully, then it's also easy to take care of yourself because, you know, you are obviously, you know, in direct control of, of how you spend things. Yeah. Yeah. So even to summarize that, it's like, bring it back to peer to peer so that there's true free market forces available where the providers are incentivized to provide a great experience for a great result. Um, and, and be more competitive than if they're just charging a ton of money to an insurance provider, which actually doesn't really care about finding competitive pricing. And then, especially if you're saving money in Bitcoin, right? Like if you spend a hundred dollars on a treatment, 
uh, and you know that that $100 in Bitcoin could be worth an order of magnitude more eventually, you are extra incentivized to do whatever you can to take ownership for that problem so that you maybe don't require treatment and you make it profitable to actually take care of yourself to avoid that treatment because the, and the extra incentive is that that $100 is going to be worth a lot more later on because I can actually save in a tool that preserves my time. So yeah, I think the it's almost like Bitcoin is like this invisible set of incentives that are kind of nudging people to change in subtle ways. Um, and I think just the notion of like truth uh, and integrity and free market, free market money is going to nudge free market incentives in all realms, including health. And I think you're seeing it with people like uh, Andy and CrowdHealth sort of offering uh, different paths where it's like, you know, the way I understand it is like whatever you don't spend from that account essentially creates a savings account for yourself. And like you said, you're incentivized to not spend. It's good to know it's there as an insurance policy if something, uh, you know, unavoidable and catastrophic happens. But in the meantime, the incentive is actually to take much better care of yourself because you actually have the pain point of paying if you require treatment for something that could be preventable. So it's like this uh, way of just subtly incentivizing people to learn how to better care for themselves and to actually acknowledge the true trade-off of, you know, the way they're eating, the way they're sleeping, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, very fascinating. Um, one question I like to ask, and you can, you know, you don't have to, you can think a bit if you need to think about it is how do you define health uh, today? And, you know, it's not like I'm going to hold you to this. You can change your mind tomorrow. That's all good. How do you define health in one to two sentences? Yeah, health is um, health is having an optimal life. I think I think it's just in one sentence that is that mm. is what health is nice. an optimal life. For many people, that optimization is different. Yeah, um, and it should but, be. But you know, in in my case, you know, the way I would define my optimal life is control over time um, to spend it as it, as needed with family, friends, work you know, interesting conversations. Um, and without that control over your time, um, it's very difficult to optimize for anything, including, you know, your own personal health. And so really it's just, you know, the optimal life is, is a healthy life. Well said. I love that because optimal does leave a lot of subjectivity, which surely it should, because everyone makes their own choices, wants to live a different life. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of what it's all about. Um, so you did, you wrote a book on co-sleeping and I guess a way to frame this is number one, I'd, I'd be really curious to know why you wrote it. Cause writing a book is not an, is not an easy feat, especially for a busy doctor, I would imagine. Um, but why'd you write it? And then I'd be really interested, um, to hear your explanation of what co-sleeping is as if, um, as if a curious parent that's never heard of the term, doesn't even know what this is, comes up to you and says, Dan. I just heard the word co-sleeping. Uh, I have no idea what it is, but I'm going to be a parent in six months from now. Uh, and I'd really like to know what it is. So why'd you write it? And what would you tell that curious patient, um, parent or parent to be that has yeah. never heard of the term? Um, like I said before, you know, Bitcoiners are hopeful people. It seems like a lot of Bitcoiners are making babies. And I think that comes with the hopeful part, right? If you're hopeful for a good future, there's a lot, much larger incentive to bring new lives into the world if you have a beautiful view of what the future could be. Uh, they also ha often have the means to actually raise a family because they store their money in, in um, or they store their time in sound money. Um, so hopefully this is a relevant topic for Bitcoiners that are having babies and I'm about to have a daughter. So it's certainly relevant for me. Congrats. So yeah, I would love to hear your yeah. take on co-sleeping. 
Um, so I wrote the book because I had a problem. Um, I had a problem because we had a daughter who did not want to sleep in another bedroom. Um, and I think most people write books, hopefully, because they have a problem that they need to either personally solve or they have an idea that just burns inside them until it's put down on pages. Um, you know, I've written a couple other books for various topics in, in medicine. And, and, and it's that it's just you have an idea, you have to get it out of your brain, you're not going to be rich, but you know that if it get, doesn't get out of your brain onto paper in an organized way, it will drive you crazy. And in this case, um, you know, I had a real problem because I was taught, as most physicians are, um, through any type of pediatric training along the course in their in their medical career that um, co sleeping, which is the act of consciously sharing a bed with an infant, uh, or a child, um, you know, distinct from bed sharing, which is the random event of a kid, you know, coming into the bedroom in the middle of the night, or you having to bring a kid in and then just kind of randomly falling asleep and the kid just happens to be on the bed with you. That would be bed sharing. Co-sleeping is sort of a conscious, prepared uh, decision to uh, generally for one parent uh, is probably the most safest, but it, it could be for, you know, two parents, but, you know, most traditional co-sleeping environments are, you know, a mother and, a, and an infant. Um, to share a bed uh, while sleeping um, in, in a sort of a prepared way. Um, and we had a problem where um, we were, you know, my, my wife was breastfeeding our daughter, uh, our first daughter, um, and she um, did not want to really be separated in the nighttime from my mom or from her mom. And so you put the kid in the other, other room, you're freaking out. That's one of the most nerve wracking uh, experiences of any parent is to then put a child in a dark room or with a nightlight and then maybe a baby monitor um, now they're video or, you know, but, you know, traditionally they were just audio only. Some people use, you know, O2 monitors on socks um, to monitor saturations throughout the night. It's just it's in a terrifying event to see essentially a helpless uh, infant uh, who, you know, is helpless and dependent solely on you uh, for survival uh, to be completely separated um, in the middle of the night. And then compound on that, the fact that most infants will still want to feed, you know, at regular one to two hour increments throughout the, or usually 90 minutes to, you know, two and a half hours every, every, every all the time at night, they're going to, and if you're breastfeeding, which is sort of one of the more, you know, healthy things, um, of, you know, of raise, when raising an infant, it becomes increasingly difficult uh, because only one individual, the mother can go to that room to provide the care. Uh, and so they are constantly going back and forth from room to room, or they have a crib or a bassinet in the room and they're getting to the edge of the bed, picking the kid up, getting the positional changes, turning on the light. Um, and, and that becomes sometimes very challenging. Um, and uh, for our situation, frequently, um, my wife would, you know, after, you know, breastfeeding would, you know, fall asleep as, you know, the hormonal changes after breastfeeding cause a mother to be sleepy, just like the infant is also sleepy, uh, to sleep in the same bed. And that became a, you know, a very troubling experience for both myself and my wife, where we were, you know, aware of the fact that sudden infant death syndrome seems to be talked about in the same realm as co-sleeping. Uh, and that there is a constant medical, um, education that you'll get when you go to your first pediatrician's appointment that you should be sleeping in separate beds and that there should be nothing, um, you know, in the bed with your infant, um, for the fear that that infant will suffocate and die. 
Um, and so we are in the situation where the only way to have a calm infant and to allow breastfeeding to happen in a really organized way was for the infant to be in the bed with my mom or with her mom sleeping on her chest or right alongside her um, sort of in the nook of the arm. Um, and so I just started reading, seeing is this really as dangerous as it is, as it is. And so that was sort of in medicine, my sort of first, you know, we've all lived through COVID and have various opinions and, and understand perhaps much more of the truthfulness of what really took place. Uh, but at the point of this being, I think, you know, the 2016, um, when we had our first infant, I was, you know, fully into what was in the guidelines being truth. And so as you start reading about how bad co-sleeping is and, and what are some of the studies, you know, albeit small, there are on, on how to sleep safely with an infant, you realize that it is not um, a taboo topic much around the world. Uh, and in many cultures, to not sleep with your infant is actually the more taboo practice. And then you sort of look deeper and you realize the biological similarities to us and chimpanzees and the fact that a chimp would never leave another baby infant chimp somewhere on the forest floor and that that chimp psychologically requires the feeling of the mother's fur while sleeping and that there are very um, accepted and more natural ways to sleep with an infant where the you know, naturally the infant wants to go alongside you um, and it's very difficult to roll over onto an outstretched arm, which is the arm that the infant is sleeping over. So suffocation and strangulation of an infant by a, a human is essentially biologically impossible when the infant is sleeping next to you. You just can't anatomically roll onto that outstretched arm. Mm. Um, and that being anatomically close to a mother while breastfeeding essentially allows for the sleep-wake REM cycle of 90 minutes to be synchronized between the mom uh, and the infant. Uh, and that, that little bit of exhaled carbon dioxide from the mom onto the infant while they're sleeping in close proximity triggers uh, breaths, which um, may actually be um, uh, protective against sudden infant death syndrome, and that you realize breastfeeding itself is the greatest of way of preventing sudden infant death syndrome. And the best way to allow for consistent long-term breastfeeding is to have proximity between mother and infant. And it just becomes this no-brainer red pill moment when you realize that everything you have taught been taught is one wrong, uh, or at least somewhat misguided. Uh, and that there is a incredibly safe way to co-sleep and that it's been what's been practiced for most of humanity up until about the 1940s and then more prominently in past the 1980s when a few popular books by some doctors were written in a consumer, you know, consumer reports advisory was released in 1995 with regards to some strangulation events. Uh, and then you just realize that, um, you know, that there's a lot of unanswered questions or things that are, are not potentially true. And, um, and you just can't help but write it down. That was a stellar answer. Um, and yeah, what a powerful red pill moment to just, um, and the cure, I think the key there is curiosity, right? It's like not taking what you've been told at face value truth and not questioning it. It's back to first principles and just asking why out of curiosity. It's like, I wonder why that's the case. I wonder if that's always been the case. Um, cause certainly you would think that conventional wisdom is that humans have not slept in different rooms for, since our evolution began, right? This seems like a very modern day and I dare I say Western phenomena, uh, very where Western. if you live in the jungle in South America, you don't have extra rooms in your place. And I remember, I think someone, I read an interview where, uh, this researcher was actually interviewing a, a mother that was in the jungle. And she asked her the question, you know, what, what do you do when your baby cries in the middle of the night? And the mother just kind of looked at her with a blank stare and was like, she doesn't, she sleeps right next to me. And the researcher was just dumbfounded where, you know, you come from this perspective where things must be this way, or this is just the way that culture is. 
um, never questioning it, just kind of living in alignment with the environment that surrounds you and the information you're getting from the experts. Um, and just this cognitive dissonance of being like, wow, I never even thought that that was a thing. But now that you explain it with that kind of logic and rationale and simplicity, it's like, it's crazy that we do it any other way. And I guess the question for you is why, you know, is it just that the medical world has just so much inertia, uh, that it, and, and momentum that it just doesn't, it's very stubborn to change or like, what, it, what is the reason you know, where's the flaw that allows pediatric physicians to still be talking about co-sleeping in this way that doesn't actually reflect reality? Um, like, wh- why is it so? Like, how can it, how can we be so far off? Um, yeah. yeah. So it, it goes back to our first, you know, at the beginning, we were talking somewhere along the line, that ability to ask why that you were really taught in medical school, which is part of the fundamental, you know, reason, ways that you learn cause and effect gets lost and it gets lost because of the one, I think you, you, it gets lost because of time. People are on so doctors on a rat race a little bit. There's lots of patients don't have time for these nuanced conversations. Um, but it also gets lost because of sort of peer pressure and the peer pressure to be constantly following the guideline. And the guideline is going to be the most milk toast, middle of the road, safe, hmm. um, non-nuanced conservative, uh, conservative um, recommendation guidelines, per- you know, there's no probably big bed sleep, you know, lobby saying this is a bad thing, but, (laughs) but there are, you know, very popular media figures who become, you know, there's a famous doctor, Dr. Richard Ferber. He popularized this cried out method where the infant is supposed to extinguish their emotion in the middle of the night by just crying inconsolably until they no longer want to cry anymore. And that's how you have, and that is how you have the calm sleep night. Um, and that, you know, that individual for some, you know, for probably many sort of media, you know, incentivized events becomes popularized. The book becomes popularized. Um, the talk shows and the, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, an Oprah Winfrey type, you know, appearance, but these, these appearances on popular television solidify this idea. And then just like any type of idea, once it is incepted, and if it's incorrect, it's very difficult to roll back. Uh, and then when the guideline is being written, it's being written by people, people who have been exposed to potentially wrong ideas, um, who feel uncomfortable saying, well, should we really put a nuanced uh, recommendation in our in our sleeping uh, guideline that it is okay to co-sleep as long as you're not intoxicated or drunk and that you've practiced it in the, you know, the historic way? Or should we just say, you know, sleep in a separate bed? And then, yeah. you know, the guy, it's just far easier to say sleep in a separate bed. You know, it also has to do with the fact that we defer a lot of our th- thinking in medicine to larger organizations. And so um, should there even be a recommendation for the Academy of Pediatrics on how to sleep with your baby? I mean, maybe not. I mean, maybe that is wisdom that's best shared between a mother, you know, and her, you know, daughter who's having her first, you know, child, but that depends on a strong societal family unit. And so as all these various, you know, pieces of wisdom and knowledge that we usually rely on family units, relative units, close social knit communities of how to do things that historically work well, even if they, we don't know exactly why they work, but they do actually work, start to slowly break down. Um, you see the replacement with sort of more less, or, or sorry, less um, nuanced recommendations from far removed societies that maybe not reflect the, you know, the wishes and ideals of, of a community. And, and so that is probably how it, you know, it happens in, in aggregate, but really what I think it has to do is that some of the wisdom that normally would happen in a, in a family unit of, of close knit women is, is perhaps lost. Um, and it gets lost because of many, 
you know, reasons the family structure might not be as high and you know strong in, in the Western world as it is. Because there are interviews with Mayan women where you you know inter the interview the Mayan women. I talk about this in the book, and they ask them, um, you know, you know, what are your thoughts on not sleeping with their infant? And they they can't even comprehend the question because that is just essentially an insane concept yeah. to them. And if you ask them of the Western woman about, you know, sleeping with her infant back in these 1970 studies, uh, and then not sleep or sleeping with the infant is, is the foreign concept. And so things become, you know, totally skewed, uh, because I think of some of the, you know, the, the culture of wisdom gets lost. Yeah. And it's almost like we, we somehow feel the sense of safety to offshore our decision-making to like authorities with these blanket uh, sort of statements thinking that, well, they said it, so it must be, they must know more than me. I think it's the default of not trusting ourselves and maybe our intuition as much and being just sort of ingrained to say, defer to the authority. They know better. They know best. Even if it doesn't feel right, it's like they know. Um, but I think that's coming back. I think we're like, even with Bitcoin, like the disintermediation of money is actually leading to the disintermediation of I think community networks as well, where you have more people connecting like Bitcoiners seem to just have this surplus of time. No, no surprise where right? you store your time and sound money that doesn't steal from you all of a sudden have this surplus that's not being stolen anymore. And you have time to actually go out and speak to people in your community, foster gatherings, bring people together. Um, and you have this common ground value set that actually self-selects for people who think with similar values. And I think it's this beautiful sort of ephemeral thing where we use the same money that has this base value set that guides everything we do. Therefore, uh, you know, when I meet Bitcoiners in real life, I'm like, I already share a lot of things in, I already share a lot of similarities and alignment with this person, even though I don't even know them yet. But the fact that they use truth money that stands for freedom, sovereignty, uh, transparency, it, it automatically means something. And so I already know that they have probably a bigger tendency to, you know, not trust and actually verify or, or uh, take more responsibility in other areas of their lives, not just their money. And so I think, you know, whether it's podcasts like this or docs like yourself who are kind of, you know, asking the questions and putting books out there, for, you know, it's funny because what you do for selfish reasons to get the stuff out of your brain and onto a page uh, can actually just, it, it's like, what's good for you is good for the whole when you're doing it in alignment with what you're trying to accomplish, which is understand how to live a life, uh, a natural life and raise a healthy family. I think that's just such a powerful example of that. And um, yeah, I mean, we don't live, we, you, you often hear people say that we live in a post-truth world. I mean, the truth is we don't live in a post-truth world. There is, there is truth out there and it will always be there. It's just that we live in a post-trust world in which many of the ways in which we could get truth reliably um, are, are no longer there. Yeah. Well said. Um, and maybe, you know, it, the more responsibility we take for understanding things, the less we actually have to trust, right? It's like this dichotomy where the less you understand something, the more you have to trust other people who claim to understand it. And, you know, typically I think for, for a long time that actually worked pretty well, right? It allowed us to specialize in what we could understand deeply and then provide that information to each other. But it's almost like we're transitioning between worlds right now, the old world of, um, you know, traditional medicine and traditional finance and the new world of like health and money. And in the old world, it was so complex that you had to defer to the authorities who did their specialized study and then told you what to believe or what to do. Uh, and I think in this new world stimulated by this idea that like we actually, you know, well-intentioned people who are misguided are actually leading us to make 
unwise decisions. We, and the only antidote to that is literally take more responsibility, right? Take more responsibility for understanding money. That way you don't have to trust and listen to the advice of this complex finance machine. You can just save and sound money. Uh, and then with health, it's like the medical experts that are there in acute situations are still, I'm very glad they're there. But the more I understand health, the less I have to trust other people to tell me what to do to take care of myself, and the more I can sort of understand and learn and do experiments myself to see what actually feels good for me. Right? It's all nice to see all oh, this big study that said you should eat this certain thing. But at the end of the day, what feels good to me when I eat something is actually much more powerful and much more important than whatever this study says. And I think we're, as a society, we seem to be sort of slowly learning that. Um, and yeah, it's kind of nice to see this, this uh, renaissance of personal responsibility, starting with money, trickling into health, trickling to all areas of life, really. Um, you have any other books that you're going to be writing? <laughs> so, uh, so I, I, during COVID, I had written uh, a fictional, um, a fictional book of some life values that I sort of held dear. Um, it's told, you know, between uh, it's called the Simple World, and it's um, you know, as during COVID, I was just, you know, I was going insane, as as many of us did, and um, you know, sleepless nights, and and sort of worrying about you know the world in terms of you know freedoms and and liberties and and my children's future and and all the various things that come along with it, in addition to you know, many stresses in the healthcare system that are beyond the scope of this talk, but the, um, you know, that have to do with various pieces of liberty and freedom. But um, yeah, so I wrote this you know, small little book of just, you know, a few, few page chapter ideas. That's a conversation between two friends that are, you know, neighbors, one of which is an older man and one of is a younger, younger individual. Uh, and they just talk through various things such as, you know, how do you identify what is the most ideal way to live a life? How do you know what is the way of, uh, how do you know what you should do? How do you know how to align your family? Um, and they have their book, they have, you know, they have this conversation throughout the, the chapters about various pieces of, of, uh, of just what it is to live a good life. Um, I had studied philosophy, I was, I was an undergraduate as well. And so that sort of those sort of concepts of, of what is a good life really have always resonated with me since I was, you know, in college and, and it, and, and how do you, give that to your kid and sort of show them that this is what you felt um, was important for being a good person is I think one of the things that many of us probably will struggle with as we get older. But for some reason at that point during COVID, I was struggling with it, you know, as a younger individual. And, um, you know, I'm sort of a firm believer that if you could write a journal with the intent that that journal was read by all of your kids and, and they're published just privately, um, it would dramatically change your awareness of how you lived your life. If you had to write down your thoughts and knew that those thoughts would be read later, um, would be incredible. Um, many of us think about how we could pass on different ideas to our kids. Um, and um, none of us probably do it in a, in a great way, but I felt at that point in my life, I wanted to do something creative to at least have something on paper that one day my kids could read and knew that it embodied me um, as sort of the way that I felt a good person should live in the world uh, and some of the challenges that they may you know, encounter when they're growing up. Uh, and I, and I just want to do that, not in a sort of a preachy way, but in a nice way, you know, as a, as a fictional conversation of, uh, of two individuals talking throughout, you know, you know, the, a couple of chapters of a book. And so I'd wrote this book called the simple world. And, um, and, uh, I, you know, with the intent that yes, you can buy it, but really it, you know, it's on my bookshelf and it's available for someday, you know, when I'm 
dead, my kids look back and say, Hey, my dad wrote this, you know, in 2019 and or 2020, you know, when I had finished it. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, you know, I really understand him as a person. And so, um, you know, that, that's sort of the only other book that I've written beyond some, you know, educational text for, you know, emergency medicine, uh, providers. And, um, you know, I just, you know, probably leave your audience with at least what, you know, that idea that, you know, how can you write for your future children to, to learn about you? Or many of us probably do this in podcasting. Many of the podcasters, I think, have immortalized their ideas in ways that their kids can someday listen to them if they're interested. Um, and that's also incredibly powerful, uh, you know, because, you know, at some point, you know, our life is, you know, we know this, our life is finite, but, um, you know, these ideas are, are infinite. And if we can pass them on, just like, you know, the spoken word of, of you know, the Aboriginal tribes, or as, you know, the historic writings of, of the monks, you know, those, those, those words are, you know, are timeless. Dan, you're a very unique human. And what, I mean, what a gift to write, not just like, again, writing something selfishly to give to your children, to make sure that they understand the wisdom that you had and make sure that that doesn't go by the wayside um, has this giant benefit. Like I'm going to get, I'm going to get your co-sleeping book and that I saw, I saw you had written that too on your website. So I'm going to grab those two because I, I, what a, what a time to need a book like that, right? Like when it seems like so many people are just sort of a little bit lost. And I think we, you know, we are often most lost before we are most clear on finding our way. And I think, you know, this notion that through times of pain, often emerges beauty, right? Like you see some of the create that some of the most beautiful art that humans have ever created yeah. were actually stemmed out of massive pain in their personal lives. Um, and so I think this period of, you know, transition, let's call it this period, this COVID period, I think created a lot of pain for a lot of people, but also out of that stemmed up probably a lot of clarity and a lot of beauty in terms of the art or the content or the things that were created. Um, so thank you for doing all the, all, all the writing you do. Thank you for putting those books into the world and being a force for truth. Uh, thank you for taking the time to chat on the podcast today. I'm going to chat with John in our next health hang. If you're free and available and you want to join in on that conversation, we're looking to build kind of a, a bigger panel of people who enjoy having deep conversations about health and are actually familiar with the world of health um, globally. And just, yeah, riff on the concept of health in all of its unique little facets uh, from through the lens of a Bitcoin or through the lens of people who search for truth and value freedom and sovereignty and uh, self-mastery and personal responsibility. So it sounds like that's in your wheelhouse. And uh, before we end off, if anyone wants to find your work online, how do they find you on the internet? Um, well, uh, you, I guess you could just, my website is, is uh, my name. It's daniel.ostermayer.co. I've got academic work there. I'm also, you know, I'm really not active on social media, but um, I do have a Twitter account that, you know, occasionally I'll post to. Um, it's just a spelling of my last name, O-S-T-E-R-M-A-Y-E-R. -E and, um, you know, reach out. I love having conversations like this, Nick. This was really fun. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, again, if you listen to these podcasts on Fountain, you can get paid Bitcoin, small units of Bitcoin called sats for doing so. And you can also send sats to the show to support the podcast if you enjoy the content. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your attention. Uh, thanks again, Dan, for being here and uh, ciao for now, folks.